So many, many of you are not, uh, many of you don't know me um, as well as I would like for you to know me and vice versa. But every, uh, I try to go to RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, our denominations college ministry that meets here on Wednesday nights <clears throat> during the school year. Uh, I had the opportunity of, of going the Wednesday night after the Monday night college championship. And I know some of you will not believe this, but I actually really had a good time. And I had a good time, and this is what you probably won't believe, because all those those kids from Georgia, those young people from Georgia, they they were really, really happy. I mean, they were so happy. I I had two two children go to Georgia, and I was thinking, man, I I wish my kids would have had that opportunity as well to go to Georgia on, on the year, one of the years where they won a national championship. It really was, it was fun. I mean, they were, they were. They did bark a little bit too much for my likings, but overall, it was, it was really good. At the same time, for, for those of you who know me, I was a, a little sad, right? I grew up in Tuscaloosa. My dad died when I was little. One of the fondest memories that, that I have is uh, watching college football with my father. So you have to cut me a little slack, right? So I was a little sad. But here's the deal, I, I realize I'm not that smart, but I'm smart enough to know to the winner goes the spoil. You get, you Georgia fans, get a few months to rejoice, to relish in it. You get all those new t-shirts, you get all those new bumper stickers, and me being on the other side, I just have to, I have to admit the dogs are champions, all right? I have to bow my head in respect because that's the way it is. It's the right thing to do. I'll say it like this. I think you'll like it. The battle of the college gridiron is over for now, and I must acknowledge Kirby is king. I say all that because I was hoping to get a few laughs, so I'm glad I got that. I thought most of you would enjoy it, right, Bynum? Um, That's not why I said it. I kind of set you up. I want it to remind us that there is a real battle going on. It's a serious battle. It's not a game. As, as much as I love college football, as much as some of you love college football, it, it makes college football insignificant. There is a battle for the hearts and minds of human beings going on. Men, women, young people, boys, girls, every human being that takes a breath It's a real battle, and that battle is is not between Georgia and Alabama. That battle is between good and evil, right and wrong, and life and death, and it is eternally significant. See, we have a God who is at work. He is relevant. He's active in every little detail of our lives, and he's gathering together a people to live in relationship with him so that they will rejoice forever with him. And as fun as it was that Wednesday night, fun as it was that Monday night after the ball game, it's nothing compared to what it will be like when Jesus Christ comes back and the whole world declares Jesus is king. 
This morning, if you think that God has no bearing on your life, if you are tempted to think that uh, a lot of things happening outside of his control, then I'm going to lovingly tell you then you don't understand who the God of the Bible is. You don't understand who the God of Moses is. and, And you don't understand the God who redeemed his people. And we're going to get an opportunity in Exodus 11 to get a chance to see a real full picture of what he's like, who he is. And we'll all have an opportunity, believer or unbeliever, to respond in a way where we can make sure. And when that, that, that last second goes off the clock, we're going to rejoice like we've never rejoiced, rejoiced before. So let me read Exodus 11. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up. If you don't have your Bibles there, it's printed for you in uh, the orders of worship. Exodus 11, verse 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more. By the way, this is an announcement of what God's going to do in the days to come. For the Egyptians, for the Israelites, for Moses. The Lord said to Moses, one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. This is after the nine plagues, and we'll talk about them a little bit more this morning. But one more plague, and afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver or gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, and this is Moses speaking to Pharaoh now, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel and all these, your servants, they shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would be present with us as we go through this passage, that you would reveal yourself to us, reveal yourself to us in your greatness and in your goodness and in your mercy and in your righteousness. Help us to know that you matter in this world, that you are relevant to each and every life that is here this morning, not only here, but across the world. Father, help us to walk out knowing that you are the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So a lot of scholars will tell you, if you read these, uh, the commentaries and other books on Exodus, that the knowledge of God is the major issue around which the Exodus epic turns. Exodus is all about knowing Yahweh, knowing the Lord. And this morning, my goal is to show you from this passage that God really matters. And he's the God that reveals himself in his scripture. You see, we, we all have a little bit of a problem, to include me. We sometimes have a, a self-referential view of who God is. Or we have a, a God of our own imagination. And there have been times in my life where I've, I've just liked religious tradition and I love just going to church because that's what I did. If your God is just simply one of religious tradition, it's not the God of Moses. It's part of God, the God of Moses, but it's not the God of Moses. It's not the God that's being revealed here in Scripture. If you have a God of, of, of simply morality, as important as morality is, it's only part of who God is. Many of us have a, a God of personal inspiration. Many of us have come to church this morning, believer and unbeliever alike, where we think, I just need to go to church so I can, I can feel better about who I am, feel better about what's going on in my life, maybe some help that, 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 that could go with me. And that's, that's not bad. But that's not the God that's presented in Scripture. The God who's presented here in Exodus 11, he is relevant. He matters to every person in here, believer or not. And he matters because, number one, he's in control of the future. Number two, he matters because he has a particular way of dealing with his enemies, and he has enemies. Number three, he has a different way of dealing with his people, his friends. And they're friends not because they're any better than anybody else. They just are. And then lastly, God really matters. God is really relevant. And this is where we'll draw everything together. Because this God, this God of the scripture, he's in control of every human heart. This God that we're going to look at this morning in these four points, you either have to understand who he is from the word, or you're going to come up with your own understanding of who he is. There's only one worthy of our worship. So let's look at this first point. And by the way, I do want to say this. I can't make you like this God. I certainly can't make you love this God. But my responsibility is to proclaim the God of the Scripture so that you understand that He is relevant, that He matters, and that you're going to have to respond one way or the other. So first of all, God is in control of everything that's going to happen. If you look at this chapter, you will have noticed, I will, I shall. This will happen, this shall happen. You look through it. It's an announcement of what's going to happen. It's advanced warning to everyone, and it's very specific. It's not like going into the, into the, the palm reader, and, and they say, oh, your life is going to be bad this week. It's not like that at all. Verse 1, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh. He will let you go. He will drive you away. Verse 4, Moses says to Pharaoh, 
what God is going to do. And he says, God says, about midnight, I will go into all Egypt. This is God going. Verse 5, every firstborn in Egypt, they shall die. Verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout the land. It will be so bad that it's never happened in the past and will never happen again in the future. Verse 8, all the servants of Pharaoh, they shall bow down before Moses. And they will let God's people go. This isn't like we hear today in, in social media or on the news where some, some religious guy that says he's talked specifically and personally to God says the world's going to end in June 2024. That's not what's going on here. This is not some tool where politicians try and get you to think about how you're supposed to live because the world's going to end in 12 years. That's not what's going on here. This is the creator God of the universe saying, this is what I am going to do. This is what's going to happen, and nobody or nothing is able to stop what I'm going to do. This is God doing these things. He is in control of everything that happens one hour from now, one day from now, one year from now for the rest of eternity. And the reason why Moses is sharing this and God is having Moses share this with Pharaoh and the people, it's not simply so that you can trust God with your future. This is so that you can know the God who ordains all that happens, everything that comes to pass, the good and the bad. God is in the details, and it might fill you with all sorts of questions, all sorts of concerns. It might even make you very, very uncomfortable, but God wants you to know him, and God wants you to know that everything that's going to happen is because he ordained it to happen, and that, 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 that may not be very comfortable, but it's true. And that's the God who is at work in this world. He says, I will, I shall, and he does. And you know why this is important? Listen, this is why it's important. There are people in this congregation that are facing some, some traumatic things in the future. And they are actually going to have to go through those things. There are really big things happening in the world. And I did have to tell you a funny story. I was, <clears throat> Josie was gone last night and... Uh, I got tired of watching TV, so I was reading through some of my emails, and every Saturday night you get this, you get this if, you, if you subscribe to certain evangelical websites, they send you these articles, and, and one of the articles that I was reading that, that I feel, it's like, hey, don't, don't preach on the sovereignty of God tomorrow. That's what he said. Because you're not in Ukraine. You, you don't know what it's like to be Ukrainian and, and say that God is sovereign. I, I guess he's not preaching tomorrow because I really didn't have a choice because I have to preach from Exodus 11, and this is God is sovereign. God is sovereign in the Ukraine. And those people have to be in some terrible situations. But we have people here that are in terrible situations. Not like the Ukraine, but they're still terrible. And by the way, Moses, God is having Moses tell the Israelites, um, hey, I ordained everything that passed, everything that came to pass, even the fast, past 400 years of slavery. 
God was in that. The Israelites, they're going to have to do some pretty hard things in the future. And they're going to have to do some hard things in the future because they've been re- they're going to be redeemed. And they're redeemed not so they can just have a party. They're redeemed so that the, the world would know the God they served. And they're called to go out and share, we say it like this today, share the gospel. And it's not going to go according to their plans. Nothing's going to go according to their plans. And they have to know it's not their plans that matter. It's God's plans that matter. And God is the one doing everything. That's a really important thing for us to understand. We have fathers out there. We have mothers out there. We have young people out there. We have college students out there. We have a lot to do as a church in the kingdom of God. And we have to know that it's not going to go the way that we think. But we have to keep doing what God calls us to do because we know that God is doing it. It's a beautiful thing. See, I I don't know about you. And I I speak as one of your pastors here. I don't know about you, but I sure am glad somebody knows what he's doing. Because we really don't. God does. It's a beautiful thing, which leads to the second point. If you think that was tough, wait till you get to this. The second point, God deals with his enemies. Which brings us to the plagues. And and, uh, I realize everybody wanted to hear the nine plagues preached on. I, I guarantee you this, trust me. We'd have got to the third one, you can say, when, when are you going to quit? You don't want to have sermons on all the nine plagues. You don't. But I'll talk a little bit about the plagues. Evil is real and must be dealt with. Do you understand that? Evil is real in the world. We've sanitized evil. There are evil people. There are evil things that happen all the time. God is announcing The coming of this plague, because evil is real, somebody who's able has to deal with it and realize there have been nine plagues that have come before. These plagues have also been referred to as signs and wonders. They're not just plagues, they're signs and wonders. And the reason they're referred to as signs and wonders is their express purpose is to remind the world who God is. That's what the purposes of the plagues are. Each plague, Nile into blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, and the darkness, all the nine that have come before this last one, God is revealing himself in two ways. First of all, God is revealing himself as judge. God is revealing himself in judgment. The plagues were to judge anyone who failed to acknowledge God. For those who were holding on to their false idea of who was in charge. You see, the, the Egyptians, they, and we talked about this before, they've had a, they had a pantheon of gods. Supposedly ran the world, these gods. Pharaoh himself was supposedly divine. And God, in these plagues, he's judging their pride, their evil self-sufficiency and idolatry. But I do have to... I do have to to remind you of this, even in judgment, there is God's grace. You, you do realize, everybody, everybody asks me, why did he have to do so many plagues? Well, he didn't. He didn't have to do 10 plagues. He could have judged evil immediately with one snap of a finger. He says in, in Exodus 9, I think it is, I could have brought pestilence and the whole world would be dead. He didn't have to do it in 10 plagues. These these 10 plagues 
some responded and turned from their self-sufficiency. Some were saved. Now, I think it's many do not. But the plagues were there so that people, so that people, they would get out of their their lives enough to say, oh, there's something bigger going around, going on around other than just me, other than just my life. It's part of the reason why I think Moses leaves in hot anger. We should get a little upset when God does miraculous things in people's lives and, and others just try to, ah, it's not a big deal. Pharaoh, Moses would have said, all you had to do was see that you're not God. All you had to do was acknowledge the real God and it would have been over. The plagues were judgments on the false gods of Israel. You know, we also think that we don't do things like the Egyptians did, don't we? We're not like those Egyptians. We don't worship frogs and river gods and the gods of fertility and snakes. By the way, they didn't worship frogs. There was a, a, a goddess of the underworld that was depicted with a frog head. I don't know why, but she was depicted as a frog head and supposedly she couldn't die. So God brings life to the frogs and then he kills them because there's only one God. We don't worship things like that, do we? Ah, uh, we do, don't we? We worship our money. We worship the things money can buy. We worship our jobs. We worship what other people think of us. We worship how smart we are. And to, to be honest, we worship other people. We bow down to all sorts of false gods. We need to realize that we even have some inadequate perceptions of who our God is. God, without any mediation, he is doing all this himself. He is the one that's controlling everything that happens in the future. He is the one that's bringing this plague directly on his enemies. And you have to realize, Egypt's not just some podunk nation with a bunch of sand and a few pyramids. Egypt at the time is, is the strongest world power with the strongest world leader. You wouldn't want to meet Pharaoh on the street. And God goes into battle with Pharaoh and it's not even a fair fight. And we do need to know that God is a judge of his enemies. That's not all though. These signs and wonders, it's not primarily about judgment. It's actually our third point. It's primarily about how God deals with his people. We see a God of mercy. God is a particular way of dealing with his friends. This chapter is really not about judgment. It's about mercy. We learn that God faithfully delivers his people according to his promises. And we see there is a distinction here with God's people and God's enemies. Here the distinction is very clear. It's very specific. It has to do with the firstborn. There's a lot of things that I can't cover about the firstborn. But if you go back and you read chapter 4, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And he's telling Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go that he would serve me. And Pharaoh, if you refuse, this is back in chapter four, I will take your firstborn son. It's a firstborn for the firstborns. Firstborns were dedicated to God. They had benefits, they had privileges, they had expectations. Israel is God's representative son That God set them apart for himself. And God is saying, if Pharaoh is intent on taking my son, he must pay with the lives of his firstborn. And before you think that's unfair, I do need to remind you of the gospel. That God loves his people so much that he gives his own firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that people like you and me would be saved. God's mercy is so great, he's willing to stop at nothing, even if it cost him his firstborn son. And by the way, I've said this a little bit before, it's not because God's people were better. We learn in other places that God's people could be just as bad as everybody else. We learned it in Exodus chapter 2. They didn't do anything to earn God's favor, and I don't know why they have God's favor. And some of those things are beyond our ability to understand, but it should at least be one of the most humbling things to the Israelites and anybody that is, that is determined to be God's friends. To be considered a friend of God, the favor is all his. And and, and in this passage, it's not only God's favor, but it's the Egyptians' favor. You thought I skipped the first few verses. I didn't. When God sets his people free, they will even get silver and gold from his enemies. All the things that they're going to need in the future so they can glorify God. Realize, God is, is not, the Egyptians are not giving the Israelites all these things so God's people can be rich. The Egyptians are giving these things to God's people so that they can serve the world, so they can build the tabernacle, so they can sit in the presence of the glory of God. They get all these things they need to do what God calls them to do, and simply because the Lord God gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Even Moses was great in the sight of them. Most importantly, their firstborn will live because they belong to God. Not even a dog will bark. So they will know they are different. So they will know that there's a distinction being made between God's friends and God's enemies. And because they are God's friends, they are to be different. So God has total control of the future, not just so that you can be comfortable knowing that that you're going to have to go through some hard things and you can trust God, but so that when you do go through very difficult things, you know that God is behind it all and you have this God that's in control of the world. God has a particular way of dealing with his enemies. God has a particular way of dealing with his friends. And here's the last point. This God who is relevant, who matters to every person, not only in this room, but in this world. He is even in total control of the human heart. I know we talked about this a little bit last week. And I also heard there were more questions. And evidently the Lord wanted me to preach again on a hardened heart because here it is again. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Uh, Listen to to Kevin DeYoung's sermon on Exodus 11. It's a sermon that that I would would encourage you to listen to. It's it's better than this. But... um, I want you to follow along here 19 times. 
you were to go back and read Exodus 4 and read Exodus chapter 7, Exodus 8, 9, 10, 11, and Exodus 14, you will notice that this hardening of the heart phraseology and verbiage happens 19 times. You'll notice the language fluctuates, it changes. Three times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Three times. Six times, there's a general reference to just being hard-hearted. Ten times, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, I do want you to understand one thing up front. Don't, Don't think that you have a God up there and there's this other guy down here saying, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Please don't harden my heart. That's not what's happening. The language fluctuates because we're supposed to see two things. That God is sovereign over the human heart, but not in a way that ever removes Pharaoh's own responsibilities and obligations because of his activities and his actions. He is not a puppet. Pharaoh is not a puppet. We are not puppets. Pharaoh is not a robot. We are not robots. God is not a puppet master. Pharaoh is willing to do what is evil. He did in his heart what his heart wanted him to do, and God holds him responsible for his activity and his actions. See, the point of this hardening of heart language, it's not really about Pharaoh at all. It's something that's there to show us something that we need to know about God. And it is this. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it reorients us from a me-centered life to a God-centered life. See, the purpose statement of all the hardening language is this. All that language in there related to the hardening of hearts. He says, so that you shall know that I am the Lord, that Yahweh is God. Because either we have a man-centered world or a God-centered universe, and those are the only two options that we have. It boils down to, is God in control or is, in man, or is man in control? And I will admit to you that both of those things have, a, have some troubles. There's some intellectual problems with both of those things. There's, there's some existential angst that goes into the fact that we worship a God that even hardens hearts. He's able to harden the heart of man. But the purpose here is to reorient us to reality that God's in control and not man. Everything. I got a minute. You know, we all experience this. I remember, I know you think I'm old, but I remember raising my children. They were 12, 10, and 8, and I remember the ages because of the particular conversation. My 12-year-old, who represented the other two, he says, Dad, can we have a sleepover tonight? No. Well, why, Dad? Well, it's Tuesday night, and you go to school on Wednesday. Well, why does that matter, Dad? Because you need your sleep. Well, why, Dad? Well, because when you don't sleep well, you get sick. Dad, that happens to Nathan. That doesn't happen to me. Why do I not get a sleepover? 
Well, son, because you asked for all your brothers and sisters. Well, okay, dad, can I have a sleepover? No, why? Because it's school night. Why, why, why? Finally, I'm sure I did not do this as well as I'm presenting it to you, but finally, because I said so and I'm your dad. It's the final why answer to all the why questions. And we either have to answer it or God has to answer it. And we're not able to answer it. Doesn't mean there aren't all sorts of problems, all sorts of things. But I will tell you this. I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to trust another human being. I know my own heart. When we speak of God's sovereignty and election and predestination, it's not because we want to pretend like we know it all. It's not, we, we don't even really want to talk about it that much. I have to talk about it. It's not because we want to be um, divisive. It's because of this. We want the world to know that God is not contingent on anything, that he's in control of everything, and if it's not him, then it's some other being, and I don't trust anybody else but the God of the Bible. reorients us from a me-centered life to a God-centered life. I don't know about you, but every day I get up and I want to know how the world's going to revolve around me. That's not what I was created for. I was created to revolve around God. God is at the center. He matters. The Israelites are going to have to enter into all sorts of what I will call wilderness training. They're going to have to do all sorts of things, and it's going to be really, really tough. It's going to be really, really hard. Their job is to make God's name known to a bunch of people that don't want to know God. They have to know that God is in total control of the future, and whatever happens, God is bringing it about. He has a particular way of dealing with his enemies, and we don't want to be an enemy of God. They have to know that he has a particular way of dealing with his friends, and it's powerful, and it's pleasing, and it's sweet. Because he's a God who can control everything, even our own hearts. And guess what needs changing the most? It's our hearts. Here's what it all boils down to. He is the only being that can take a heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh so that nobody here has to leave as an enemy of God. Nobody. If you come to acknowledge that this God is a God that's in control of everything, that you understand that he is a judge and yet he's a merciful judge and he wants all men to repent and turn to him. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of Jesus Christ as holy, righteous, and pure who says at the same time, come to me, all you who are weary and, and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you realize that when God's at the center of the universe, we are then free? If we're at the center of the universe, then we're all bound up trying to make things happen and we're just going to destroy ourselves. God's sovereignty in the future, God's sovereignty in judgment, God's sovereignty in mercy, God's sovereignty in our hearts sets us free. Pray that everybody here would know the God who reveals himself in Scripture. And he's, he's not always a very comfortable God. But he's a powerful God, and he can change any heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that no man or woman, even young person, child, would walk out not knowing that you matter, 
not knowing that you're relevant to every aspect of our lives, that you are a God worthy of our worship and you alone are worthy of our worship. Would we be a people that worships you, that goes out into the world and proclaims your name so that other people would know of your love and your mercy and your righteousness and your holiness? Would you work through us, help us to trust you in that work in Jesus' name, amen.